Thank you for tuning in to the WAM Podcast, where women empower women in business and manufacturing. Hi, I'm Linda Regano, co-host of the WAM Podcast. It's an honor to be your host, where I get to introduce listeners to some amazing women who are making a real difference. With our podcast, you'll hear inspirational stories, both personal and professional challenges our guests have overcome, how their backgrounds help to shape who they are today, and how they're giving back to their communities and oftentimes the world. Joining me today, I'm delighted to have Chloe Songer, who is an amazing innovator who is really changing refashioning footwear by using sustainable materials to make a new kind of sneaker, one that's durable, biodegradable, and recyclable. So, but let's hear all about it directly from Chloe. Chloe, thank you for joining our show. Hi, thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here. Great, great. And and Chloe, you have such an incredible background. I want to dive right in here. Not to mention that you have created a company that is changing how we look at materials in our footwear, but I always like to look at our guests, their backgrounds, and you have such an interesting background. Maybe you could just tell us a little bit more about growing up and who your early influencers were. Yeah. So I'm from California. I grew up in the Bay Area, in the Silicon Valley, through the 90s and through the internet bubble and felt like I was kind of near the center of innovation, which I guess wasn't totally... I didn't really understand how fortunate or lucky I was to have grown up there until I left and spent college in the South and, and then eventually moved to the Northeast and abroad. But, um, a really foundational, pivotal moment for me was really growing up there and growing up to parents who are entrepreneurs in their own right. You mentioned that your father is a nuclear engineer. Yeah, I am 100% a product of my parents. I am a complete 50-50 split. And I, I've, I told you this story, but I, I hadn't told it in quite a few years, but my father is a nuclear engineer turned biomedical entrepreneur. And my mother is an artist, uh, has her master's in fine arts and ceramics and like hyper creative web thinker. And the two of them couldn't be more different, both on the analytical and process oriented and problem solving versus creative social skills. And I'm like firmly smack in the middle. I wanted to go to art school. I was obsessed with the idea of going to RISD for fashion design in high school, but my best subject was math. And I, every, everyone in my family from, you know, grandfather to cousins to siblings are in math and engineering. I was looking for some way to, you know, stay in something analytical, but, but tie it to something creative. And through school and earlier in my career, ended up, you know, finding my way back to fashion and back to retail and really on the business side, being able to utilize both skill sets. And also, though, you have had a fascination with the Chinese culture. Now, you went to Duke University, and I understand you majored in international comparative studies of East Asia. Yeah. You got you to gotta tell us about that one. <laughs> yeah backtracking really quickly first to growing up in the Silicon Valley and why that was actually so important to what I'm doing now. In the early aughts, particularly Palo Alto, Menlo Park, that area was a hub for the early kind of environmental and green movement. And so I lived sure. like right in between Stanford and Berkeley. And I was fortunate enough to work with an incredible Stanford professor through my high school career on a behavior change program for the Stanford Pre-Court Institute at the time to change family consumption behavior or energy consumption behavior and patterns through educating high school and middle school students. And that, you know, became something larger and ended up working with Berkeley and being trained with 
Al Gore and Inconvenient Truth, a trained speaker, and further kind of started presenting research and findings with Stanford and, you know, the DC National Conference, and then actually ended up going to Copenhagen as a UN youth representative for the US during the COP15 in 2009, when um, Obama was first going to sign the first cl- like international climate change agreement, going to sign, did not sign. But I was hyper involved in climate activism and policy change from starting at the age of 14, from everything from local solar plans and recycling programs and waste management at the local policy level. Um, and then got like a taste of what that would be like on an international stage really early on. But at the same time was again, obsessed with fashion design and art. And so ended up going to Duke, had no idea what I wanted to do, was a little burnt out from the activism and took a step back, but ended up deciding to be an econ major. Again, it was wanted to go into something close to STEM, but not STEM and wanted to be able to create change in some way. I was still thinking about social activism and climate change and climate policy and ended up solely for initially for econ taking Chinese. And then, you know, initially thinking I'm going to test it for a semester and then truly falling in love with the language. And I know maybe people wouldn't expect that with Chinese, but I, I, truly think it's a beautiful and fascinating language, especially to learn to speak with the different intonations, et cetera. Mm, absolutely. I ended up minoring in Chinese and then studying abroad there for the first time in 2012 and then moving back to China post-grad. I ended up changing my major to create my own major partway through school and really focused on luxury markets. And so it was a mix of econ, art, and fashion. So luxury markets in, South, in, in East Asia which was awesome and incredible that I had the privilege to be able to do that. Oh, it must have been. I, I mean, I, I can't imagine going out at, at your age and living there and definitely an adventurous side to you. Talk about, because it's um, you first were introduced to manufacturing, you said, when you were working for the Alexander Wang Group, right? Yeah. So I moved to China post-grad. I did, if anyone's listening, you're, you're thinking about going abroad, do it. I mean, post-COVID. I did a fellowship. So I did a fellowship through Princeton in Asia. They pay you for a full year to go live abroad. I was actually working and living in Wuhan at the Wuhan University of Technology, which especially in light of 2020 was is an interesting connection. And it was incredible for me to spend, you know, a year in central China, actually living and working in Chinese and in a local community. And then moved to Shanghai post the experience in Wuhan. So in Shanghai, I met kind of one of my life mentors, I guess, an incredible woman named Jasmine Ting, her boss, and another mentor that I love, Ying Wang. And working for them, they worked under the AWG, Alexander Wang Group umbrella, but they were launching Arte brand, which is a fantastic, amazing made in China, designed in China luxury label. And that was really incredible for me in kind of the first three years of my career to be in-house at a small, nimble brand that also had connections to major manufacturing and supply chain resources throughout China because of the connection to the larger Wang company. And so learned a lot. And got, I mean, I was drinking from a fire hose. I was like, really had you know no experience other than you know ambition and ability or, or a desire to just jump in and work contribute however I could, but everything from fabric sourcing, sample rooms, supply chain, you know, marketing and sales meetings, wholesale relationships throughout China, really got a taste of what it looked like, you know, across different facets of running a, a retail business. And you also said, which I thought was so interesting, that the, the experience in China really amplified your vision to do something 
that would be sustainable. You want to maybe speak to that a little bit? There were a couple of things. I mean, I was working. I think it was interesting for me, instead of initially going into a finance or consulting role post-grad, to have these two wildly unique or different experiences in Wuhan and then in Shanghai at Arte and to be working for two women who had founded and built companies. And Alex's mom is a self-made tycoon in her own right, who's founded and built multiple manufacturing supply chains and companies. And then working directly under Jasmine was incredible. I mean, following her and shattering her day to day and just like, I, you know, it was like, this is going to be me. I've got to start something. I've got to do something. But at that same time, you know, living in Asia and living close to the means of production and like my first time in and out of a factory setting, my first time in and out of a tannery and seeing the waste and also having spent the time in Wuhan and seeing what rapid, truly rapid development in developing nations, second and third tier cities looks like was shocking to me because I had, not that I had put climate activism on hold. It was still very much a part of my personal life, but it hadn't been a part of my public life in the four years that I was in college and really stepped back from just how engaged I was as a teenager. And so it felt kind of disingenuine to be working in a consumer company and a consumer product company and not be kind of tying in those ideals and that lifestyle that was super important to me. And then again, just close to the means of production, seeing the waste, seeing what rapid, rapid development looks like. It's shocking. When you're in a manufacturing environment, like everything, like see, smell, touch here, like there's just, there's so, it's, it's, there's so much going on and so overwhelming and especially somewhere like a tannery. Yeah, no. And, and seeing that firsthand, I mean, it really, I mean, sustainability is one of those, it can be used very casually and, and obviously it oh, was yeah. not here. So you went from having this amazing experience, obviously uh, Jasmine was a huge role model for you, but you left and you came back and you went to Gap. You want to talk about that? Yeah, I love Gap. <laughs> I, love <to> <laughs> I do too. I, I think I'm like Gap's biggest advocate. I had another mentor tell me, if you want to learn to change the fashion industry, you need to learn to sell units. Hmm. And I was, I was so, we didn't talk about it prior, but I had interned at Vogue and I'd interned at Vogue China. And I was obsessed again with my mom being an artist and my kind of, you know, I minored in art and my obsession with fine art and luxury fashion, the idea of going into luxury at first. Mm -hmm. I think it's how many people enter the retail industry. But then this idea that I, I want to make a change and I want to change the system. I'm not going to do that with a small brand that's selling $2,000 coats. Right. So went to Gap. Luckily, Gap is kind of from my hometown. So Gap's from the Bay Area. It's in San Francisco. And so got to go home for a year and do Gap Bank's management training program. So anyone looking to get into retail, fantastic program. You can be right out of grad or you can be you know, within five to seven years, I think, post-grad. Mm -hmm. It's really kind of the best graduate school. It's almost like a master's for running a retail business. They put you through the full, you're learning the nuts and bolts of a retail business and you're, you're not going through marketing and finance. You're really going through product development and inventory management and like the nuts and bolts of running, again, retail, digital, e-com, product strategy, et cetera. And it was an incredible year. And post that, I then went to Gap Brand and the New York City office in merchandising on the women's knit tops business mm -hmm. on both specialty and outlets. So both full price and off price which was super important to me to go to a high volume, high touch or high focus business, women's being the majority of the gap business, but then also knits, which is, you know, a high unit velocity, big, big volume driver business and basics business. And it was there that you talked about 
just having an epiphany about the amount of time that it takes, you know, between the commitment to the fabric <laughs> and, and actually doing something. Yeah. You go to Gap and you're so jazzed up and you're like, I'm changing the world. And you're in this training program with a bunch of other incredible young people who are so excited and you're meeting really brilliant people, I think, across like from every point in their career come through Gap. So I'm meeting incredible people at the director, VP, EVP, and even board level that blew my mind that are really thinking big and investing in the future of retail on the strategy side. But then you get in role and you start to understand what happens when organizations scale and with legacy organizations when bureaucracy forms. The problems are the unique problems that businesses that are publicly traded have when responding to the street and managing margins. And so for a company as big as Gap, that's moving as many units as they're moving per year, Gap was placing fiber commitments five to 10 years out. So they were placing futures in cotton and watching cotton prices because Gap uses, I think, up to you know 1% of the global cotton supply across Gap, Banana Republic, Old Navy, Athleta. It's the largest American-owned retailer. It's a huge business. Yeah. And so any shift in cotton pricing... I. I forget what year it was, but there was a large drought and cotton prices went up because cotton crops were down, really impacts, you know, has ripples across the whole industry, but really impacts, you know, Gap's bottom line. Sure. And most people probably know this, but like retail and consumer products are not a margin rich business. Like you're really, especially with the influx of fast fashion in the last 30 years, it's been a race to the bottom. And so a lot of the problems you see throughout supply chain with living wage sustainability, cutting corners, a lot of that's tied to the fact that people are playing within times like 50 or less than 50% margins. But not only that, but how do you act nimbly if you want to come out with something new or be able to respond to something? Oh God. So that's the problem. In order to keep costs down, you're then locking in fabrics or locking in fibers for five to 10 years. We had a stripe because stripes are expensive. They're more expensive than a dip dye or a whole color, right? got to keep our costs down on a striped knit, like a black and white stripe. We booked that stripe for five years out. And then when we wanted to change the stripe, it was like, whoa, we're committed. Like we've booked it. We've booked it in order to save 40% on cost. And we're like consistently buying fiber and booking space in in our partner mill and our partner factories line for that striped shirt. And so it really impacts your ability to be nimble. So it was something I saw. I was, you know, became kind of a sustainable fiber SME within my team, which was just like, I was obsessed with, you know, what can we do? Can we think about sustainable fibers? And it became this, everyone at my team had the best of intentions and they were awesome people, but it became this like ongoing kind of joke, like not joke, but like we would, every season we would develop all of our products with low water use dye and the new eco-friendly wash and organic cotton. And the design team would have this gorgeous, like eco-friendly range lined up and knits. And then we'd get to investment review at the end of the line. The department would be rolling $10, $15 million over. And at that point, a 60 to $0.90 innovation per T-shirt, when you're buying 10 million T-shirts, hits your bottom line. When you're playing that budget game is when some of the innovation gets cut or pushed out until the consumer is actually willing to pay 4 or $5 more for an organic cotton T-shirt from Gap. Yeah. But what an education you got there. Yeah. Incredible place. Yeah. That led you then to create Thousandfell, which is your business. And I understand that you met your partner, Stuart, when you were both in China, right? Yeah. So Stuart and I met in 2014. We did the same Princeton and Asia program. So he was actually in Thailand and then moved to Shanghai and I was in Wuhan. 
but it was like an incredible time for both of us, I think, to to start our career and to be in Asia. And he actually started in, not started in footwear, but pivoted to footwear much sooner. Let's talk about that because the, I mean, the numbers that you had shared with me are astounding. Obviously, waste, you know, it's waste is synonymous with fashion, it sounds like. The fact that they're discarding these materials, you know, and this whole idea of junking items, which is out of fashion. Talk a little bit, if, if you can, about the research and what led you to create Thousand Fell. 100%. So our main mission and vision with Thousand Fell is how do we end textile waste? Currently, 17% of landfill waste in the U.S. is clothing and textile waste, 17%. And the problem with that is that landfills are so well managed here in the U.S., which means they're highly, highly, highly compacted because space is tight and there's not actual room for things to break down or biodegrade. But something as organic as a banana peel can take up to 80 years to break down in a U.S. landfill. Oh, that's scary. Um, it's scary. And, and, and so we're creating these like no man zone, like waste zones that directly impact the communities around them through chemical leaching, lecate, which is a sludge that runs off from landfills that includes heavy metals, toxins, carcinogens, etc. And when you look at just fashion and retail, but particularly football, footwear, the main component parts that go into footwear are incredibly toxic. So leather, especially mass market leather, when it's tanned, includes heavy metals, including chromium that contribute, you know, their carcinogens and heavy metal runoff. And leather mm-hmm. can take 80 to 100 years to biodegrade, if not longer in a landfill. And then rubber, rubber, an, an actual, just rubber straight from a tree can't be put into a shoe. It has mm-hmm. to be vulcanized, it has to be vulcanized in order to be flexible. That means adding plastics. And so the majority of your shoe and then the other kind of main component part in, in a shoe is TPU or plastic. And plastics, again, we know contribute to microplastic pollution and, you know, again, chemical leaching. And so there's a big problem with just sending these consumer products to landfill and pretending that they're going to go away. An average shoe can take up to a thousand years to break down. And that's a thousand years might sound like a lot, but what really hit me was that's 30 generations. Yes, absolutely. 30 generations from now, my shoe will still be in a landfill. They'll be there with the hostess Twinkie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The numbers that you had shared were astounding. You had said that currently there's 2.4 billion pairs of shoes. Mm -hmm. And, And this is all shoes, not just sneakers that are sold in the U.S. every year. And 300 million mm-hmm. go straight to a landfill within the first year. Mm-hmm. Yes. So, I mean, that, that is, I get you're wanting to, to do this, but I think it took a lot of courage to even approach this. Let's talk about how you are doing this because it's based on a business model that's called circular economy. And maybe you could just talk a little bit about what that means and why has nobody else done this? Yeah. Starting the circular economy to us is how do we move away from the linear economy, which is take, make and use and dispose and move it into a system that really values waste at end of life. So even when you are done with the product, there's still a, a system or a plan in place to reuse or to value that material or product for a second life. What we're doing with Thousand Fells, we've designed into what was at the time the first fully recyclable sneaker where we're actually doing life to life recycling. We you take the shoe, you wear it, you run through it, live your life in it, send it back to us. We'll take it back. We collect, sort, pull apart, separate into material feeds. And then actually we can put roughly 80% of an old shoe or used shoe back into new shoes and back into our new material feeds. 
And then the other 20%, 10% is industrially composted and 10% will be downcycled just the foam in the shoe. Foams are incredibly hard to recycle and we're working on a solve. Currently, we'll go to um, insulation and construction projects in the Northeast. But the whole idea is, you know, why do things end up in landfill? And, and kind of back to the stats you shared, right now there's a problem with donation markets. And you, as a consumer, you finish with clothes in your closet or you tear through your shoes. Like the reason we started with shoes, to just backtrack even a second behind that, is shoes have a half life. There are some shoes, you know, occasion shoes, dress shoes, high heels that you might keep for 10 years and like really take care of. But that daily utility basic, that's a daily walking shoe or a running shoe, whatever it might be, our core customers replacing their daily walking shoes two to four times a year, depending on, you know, how heavily they use them. Are they biking? Are they skateboarding? Are they walking to work every day? Or, and a lot of the use case we found is that people are wearing them. It's the new 10,000 sneakers or the new 10,000 step a day shoe or footwear choice. You're wearing a Monday to Friday to work. You're not thinking. You're wearing it to a dive bar or a concert on Saturday. It's brown. And at that $80 to $120 price point, you're replacing it on Sunday before work on Monday. What do you do with a shoe that truly has been worn? If, if your shoe, if, you've, if you haven't worn it, it didn't quite fit, it didn't quite look good, and you donate it, there's a good chance if you give it to the right groups like Souls for Souls that it will find a second life. Something like 85% of donated shoes immediately get diverted to landfill. So we actually liken shoes to lingerie, that they're intimate basics. If a shoe smells even slightly on the inside, it's a sign of bacteria and it can't be donated. The back heel strike is too worn down on the rubber. It'll affect the second user's gait. It can't be donated. You know, these are like think about your feet. These are like fairly intimate products, which is you know, even more different from coats or, you know, pants, tops, etc. And so there's a huge problem with how quickly we're running through these. We call them high-frequency basics and then needing to put high-frequency basics on a loop system. And so when we think about the circular economy, how do we give value or assign value to the product when you're done with it so that you as a consumer are willing to take the extra 5, 10, 20 minutes to ship it back or to send it back? And it's taking, it's, it's clearly taking a commitment on your part and an expense on your part that other companies may not be doing if they're just focused on the profit. It sounds like you're much more focused on, obviously you want to, you're not doing this to not make money, but yeah. you're... You're doing this for a reason, totally, and right. which is which is a beautiful thing. Yeah, I think a couple of things there. I think like one, it's much easier to build this system from inception than to take a legacy business with legacy supply chains and legacy, you know, fabric material commitments, vendors, etc., and move a legacy system to a closed system. You know, this was this wasn't easy, but really important that we were able to start without any rules, right, and just build. But second, I fundamentally believe the industry is moving here and that in the next 10 to 20 years, it will be table stakes for brands to have recycling and end-of-life solutions for all their products. Like, And you're starting to see it with brands like Tommy Hilfiger, really respect Tommy, and coming out and announcing that he's moving all of his brands and product lines to be circular by 2030, and they're building the roadmap as they go. We're going to see that change. And so for us, it's about... Yes, we're putting up more money now, but I think we're investing in something that, that will pay benefits in the future as the rest of the industry moves here and tries to catch up. Absolutely. And, and you're starting, I did want to come in, you're starting with sneakers, yes. right? You want to just touch on that? Why sneakers? And where do you, do you see this going to other kinds of footwear? 
Yeah. Right now we are fully focused on sneakers. I don't want to say never. Eventually it could be other other footwear, but right now everything in the pipeline is sneaker or sneaker related. We're obsessed with sneakers for many reasons. Right now the brand is fully unisex and we're hyper focused on a younger I like the word millennial, but in, you know, Gen Z and millennial cross audience that to us is going to be the gen it's our generation, but it's gonna be the generation that like, changes the world both politically and socioeconomically and helps us kind of solve or, or combat climate change. And sneakers are so important to kind of our, our youth culture and youth demographic right now in this country, but but internationally. And for us, we love that sneakers are uniquely kind of American heritage products, that they're unisex, fully sticking with sneakers for the moment. Okay. So let's just, if we could go back, because and I understand your parents have, you've got this right brain, left brain thing going on. And I mean, you're doing something that most people don't do. You know, you're really, you're creating an opportunity. You're taking risk. You know, it takes courage. It takes smarts. It takes energy. Who was your biggest role model? Where did you learn this? <laughs> you would think, you would think I'd have an answer ready for my biggest role model. I don't, I think that I was incredibly fortunate to have met to A, come from a family of role models, and then B, to have met really incredible adults who took an interest in me really early on at different points and kind of, we even touched on a couple of them today, points in kind of my career path or early growth path. Jasmine. Yeah, and Jasmine, the, no, the uh, Stanford professor that took me under her wing through high school that really helped me kind of get into environmental activism and climate change. And then coming from a family of like self-starters and, and even back to, I was thinking about it this week with RBG or Ruth passing and my grandmother, she's 91 now, but she, she was an entrepreneur. She like came from a small town up in upstate uh, Washington and married her high school sweetheart. I absolutely love my grandfather, but married her high school sweetheart, moved to California and was the only woman in my dad's neighborhood growing up who worked, but not only worked, started her own business and had to have my grandfather co-sign for her to start her own business, and, but, but maintained a separate balance book and maintained a separate cash flow, which to me was, That's I always great. knew that about her because she ran, she, she started a hair salon and, and beauty salon. So she's like incredibly creative and gorgeous. She ran that business for, I don't know, 20, 30 years and grew it and kind of like, you know, really respected her and what she built. But it was so interesting to think what she even had to get through to start that. Sure. So we're coming in, I feel like we could go on forever, just, you know, hearing more about your background and, and just your experiences, you know, at China and Gap. But we've got a, just a couple of minutes. What's the best advice that you ever got, Chloe? And how did it change you? Yeah, this is so, Stuart and I were actually talking about this this past week. And something we wish that we learned earlier in life. And I don't know who said it. I like really can't remember where I heard it, but I can't take credit for it. But somebody said within the last five years to be the mayor, I didn't know exactly what that meant at first, but the, the meaning is take it upon yourself to get to know as many people as possible or as many people in your community or around you and be the person that you know, brings them together or, or makes them feel good. And I, I keep coming back to that because so often when you're growing up or your high school, college, early career, that you have so much insecurity and you're dealing with so much. It's very 
easy to be, especially for me, as I was growing up to be kind of socially anxious or off or awkward. But in starting a business in particular, I would never have been able to get here without meeting as many interesting and awesome people along the way as possible. Like, yes, we came in and we, we worked really hard to build this. And a lot of this has been just like true, like hours and hours of like hard work and, and sweat equity that Stuart and I have put in. But it's also been incredible people that we've been able to kind of convince to join the journey along the way. And so and I, I wish I had kind of started that open networking communication earlier. Which is wonderful advice to uh, anybody who's listening, especially if they want to start their own business or not. It's just no, I think it's a, when you're being of service, it just, it feels good. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think, I think it's a different way. It helps me even going into a new social environment or it just helps remove stress of how they think about me. Are they looking at whatever it is? It's like, no, like my job or my position here is yeah, to be of service, be the mayor, be as kind or as like helpful as you can possibly be. I love it. Thank you. That was wonderful. All right. Well, I, I'm sorry, but we, we are right at a time yeah. at the end of the show. And Chloe, thank you so much for sharing your journey, your insights. We definitely have to come back and uh, do a follow-up and hear how you're doing in six or eight months. Yes, would absolutely love that. All right. Well, congratulations. Thank and you. thanks again. So for, for more information about Chloe Songer and Thousandfell, where should they go? Head to thousandfell.com. Or head to our Instagram, which is currently thousand fell un- or thousand underscore fell. Okay. Terrific. Thank Terrific. You so much, Linda. All right. Well, thank you. You're welcome. And for all the listeners out there, we look forward to our next show. Stay tuned for more great stories with amazing women. Thank you for joining the WAM podcast, where women empower other women in business and manufacturing. For more shows like this, go to whampodcast.com. That's whampodcast.com. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.